There is a cartoon uh, circulating in the office this week. Katie Heaton found it as a teaching tool for her OWL class this coming year. OWL is a program about sexuality and our whole lives that we provide for our youth. And the cartoon is making everybody chuckle a bit, and it's, it's a great illustration for today's topic. Uh, didn't know what you were getting into this morning, did you? So in the first frame, there are these two little stick figures coyly standing next to each other, and each has his, her little stick arms wrapped around their body like they're drawing a coat around themselves. And one figure says to the other, I'll show you mine if you show me yours. And in the next frame, they open their arms wide to the sky, and there in their little stick chests are two big red hearts. This month, we are talking about standing on the side of love, about different issues of social justice. And as we move deeper into this topic and tease out what it will take to build an authentic community of justice and reconciliation, I'm becoming uncomfortably aware that I'm going to have to show you mine, and you're going to have to show me yours if this is going to have any chance of working. So let me give you a little background to this thing I'm thinking about these days. Justin just loves to bring in articles or chapters of books that he's reading into staff meetings as a way of kick-starting discussions about the church or how we might do things differently or how we can become more vital to this community. And at the beginning of spring, he brought in a chapter from a book called Axiom, Powerful Leadership Proverbs by Bill Hybels. And this particular chapter was called The Tunnel of Chaos. Thanks, Justin. (laughs) So the author explains that there is a difference between genuine community and pseudo-community, a phrase that was coined by psychiatrist and author Scott Peck. We are all longing for community. We all want to know and be known. We want to be loved and to love others, to celebrate one another. But in that deep-seated wish to belong and to experience love, Peck says most communities naturally devolve into pseudo-communities. We slide into a state where people are not quite telling each other the truth, not quite celebrating each other. Instead, everyone is settling for sitting on the unspoken matters. We hold on to that final 2% of what we're thinking in order to keep the peace. What Peck and Heibel both talk about is that in order to foster genuine community, To grow vital community, we have to be willing to endure a little chaos. Bill writes, to break free from falsehood, someone has to upset the apple cart and say out loud, 
As far as I can tell, we are not experiencing real community here. We're not where I want for us to be, anyway. Frankly, I'm holding back. I'm not giving you the final 2% of what I'm thinking. And I'm not really hearing what you have to say, either. Now, quite frankly, as I say these words to you, I'm getting a little bit queasy. I'll give you a little audio version of Ruthland up here. Oh, yeah. Just open up that can of worms. Go right ahead. Yep, yep. Now you're going to be receiving your 2% all over the place. I wonder what people are really going to do with all of this. 2% is not just complaint party. It's talking about listening and talking and reverence. And oh my God, this is a really big topic. Do you really want to go there? Still... I have to tell you, once Justin brought that into the staff meeting and we started talking about that 2%, once we started to tease out what genuine community felt like versus pseudo-community, I was hooked. I was hooked. I found myself wondering as I interacted with my friends and my, my different communities, hmm, am I holding back? Is there a 2% I'm not saying that is keeping us from being in full relationship? And then I started thinking about our whole campaign strategy against the marriage amendment. That strategy depends on conversations built on that final 2%. Here is an issue that is so near and dear to my heart, that is so pivotal to my life and my well-being as a partnered lesbian woman, and yet I am so reticent to tell my story because I want to maintain the peace. How are we going to have these conversations if we're not willing to deal with a little chaos? We are like those little stick figures holding our arms so close to our chest but wanting so badly to show you mine and to see yours, those big old three-dimensional red hearts disguised so cleverly in one-dimensional conversations. I'm not sure when I decided to make the 2% conversation part of my spiritual practice, but I did. And now let me tell you something about spiritual practice. In the beginning, it always sounds like it's a really great idea. And then you have to practice. <laughs> so, for example, oh man, I was at General Assembly this year, which is the national meeting of the Unitarian Universalists. And I was taking a course at the same time on the history and governance structure of our denominations with several seminarians from around the country. Now, there is no way to talk about our history as Unitarian Universalists without addressing slavery and the Civil War. It was such a divisive issue for our denomination and deeply shaped us as a faith. 
And so in our class, when we discussed that time in our history, people postulated as to what position they would have taken or what they might have done in that time period. And I ended up saying something like, uh, you know, it's all well and good to talk about this in hindsight, but the practice of slavery was so deeply interwoven into every aspect of life, it's hard to say what any one of us might have done. You had slaves owning slaves in order to buy their own freedom. I, I said a little bit more, but I was full of feelings, and I can't remember exactly what I said, but... I'm pretty sure it was a bit of a jumble. And as I started to come out of my impassioned meanderings, I, I looked around and noticed that the dialogue was only taking place between the white members of the class. And all the African-American seminarians were silent. So I walked out of class, and I don't feel right. And I'm becoming more and more uncomfortable with the tenor of the conversation. And I think about my classmates of color whose lives are still so deeply shaped by racial injustice. And I wonder, what were they feeling about this heady, kind of disembodied conversation? And all of a sudden, it hits me. Oh, no, I'm going to have to spiritually practice. And it wasn't going to be easy either. I didn't know anybody, really, in my class, except for Laura Schmidzik. And still, I had made a promise to myself, 2%. I decided to talk to Sherm, a minister from the Baptist tradition who was working to be ordained in the UUA. At least we'd had lunch together earlier in the week. And so we were hanging out a bit after class the next day. And I said, hey, Sherm, do you want to have lunch? And he, sure, he says. So we're sitting down, eating some bad pizza. And I, I take a moment, and I'm feeling a little bit of churning, a little bit of chaos inside. So I say a little prayer, and I launch in. You know, we've been talking a lot about the slavery and the Civil War in class and what people would or wouldn't have done. And I have to admit, I, I get so upset the more I understand the history of slavery and the inadequate ways we teach about it in schools, I can barely make sense when I talk about it. Sure. How do you feel about what's being said in class? What do you think? There it was. That was my 2%. If I wanted to be in real community with Sherm, then I had to ask that question and actually stay open to his answer. And he said something like, well, well, it doesn't really bother me, but you know what really gets me? And then he launched into this discussion of some of the things he'd heard in a floor debate among delegates. And then we talked about his Baptist roots and him missing some of the rituals of Christianity. And I talked about my love for the Gospels. And all of a sudden, I realized we are in genuine 
relationship. And I don't think it would have happened if I hadn't voiced my 2%. In the Rilke poem you heard earlier, the poet challenges us to build what we have so daringly imagined, that astounding bridge that connects you and me in genuine community. He says, to work with things is not hubris. To wrestle with ourselves, to assuage our fear of chaos and stretch, to build an association across the chasms that divide is what we are meant for. We are meant for this stretching. Rilke writes, God learns there. As a faith community, we make promises to one another. We say we're in this together. We affirm a way of being together. We say, this may be a difficult conversation, but I am bound to you and you are bound to me. This is our great covenant. I'm committed to working through this, no matter what it takes. So in this place of promises, how might we move deeper with one another as well as engage and make a difference with these powerful questions of our time? How do we stand on the side of love? I think it begins with that 2% and what that 2% asks of us individually and as a community. As a community of faith, we affirm our first principle, the inherent worth and dignity of every human being. Said another way, every human being carries within a divine spark. That means before we even begin our conversation, we recognize the holy alive in the other person or persons sitting across from us and the holy within. We begin the spiritual practice of the 2% with a sense of awe and reverence. As I looked across at Sherm, his off-white straw hat with that red and blue hat band, the easy manner of his smile, my fear of chaos was far outweighed by reverence. The reverence I had for this man and the story he was about to tell me if I really wanted to hear it. I tried to remember that I was taking my well-disciplined strengths and stretching them between two poles because the God in me wanted to learn something. Our fourth principle affirms a free and responsible search for the truth. That's another way of talking about discernment. And that's not just discernment beyond ourselves, but a discernment within. In order for this 2% thing to really work, discernment is key, and discernment takes time. It's important to step back, to take a breath, to say a prayer before or even in the midst of a conversation, asking, why am I so upset 
about this? Or what about this makes me so sad? Or wait, I need to stop and think about this for a second. Or what am I seeing that I don't want to see? Or what is the rub I'm feeling right now? Why am I holding back? Or why am I clobbering this other person? Does this feel like genuine community? We need to discern and pay attention to our natural ways of being in the world. Am I a person who loves to jump in and mix it up? Or am I a person who sits back and wants to scout it out? And if I don't have to say anything, all the better. (laughs) Both impulses are a means by which we protect ourselves. In the first gesture, we make sure we are in control of the situation by taking up space. We guard against the chaos of genuine exchange by making sure there's no room for it. The other gesture protects by another means, by hiding, getting low, staying out of the way. Now all of us fall somewhere on that continuum, and it takes time to figure out where you are. It takes time to figure out how you fit into this puzzle of community. Wherever you land, I invite you to move a little from your comfort zone and try taking up a little less space and listening more or taking up a little more space and talking more. Especially in dealing with issues of culture, class, race, and or sexual orientation, it's important to begin from a place of, I don't know. I don't know. The 2% conversation must begin from a place of cultural humility, asking a question and really listening to the answer. That does not mean a question like, why do you people do such and so? It's asking questions that engender story. Stories are the way we begin to move beyond our cultural assumptions, our way of making someone else other and make room for our full humanity, yours and mine. Story is powerful. It is why the primary vehicle, it is why we are choosing it as the primary vehicle of defeating the constitutional amendment. Story is powerful. You show me yours, and I'll show you mine. We're all a bunch of big, red, walking hearts. Finally, I want to talk about mercy. 2% is really hard. 2% is uncomfortable, and we are not going to do it right. In fact, we're going to do it wrong a lot of times. Still, if we have any chance with building genuine community, then we must embody mercy. Mercy means compassion. In Chinese, the word for mercy also means mother. In the ancient Hebrew, 
the root for the word mercy comes from the root word womb. So mercy implies the deepest sense of holding and loving something that is vulnerable. The spiritual practice of 2% asks us to be merciful, to show mercy to ourselves and to one another as we move into this tunnel of chaos and ultimately genuine community. To work with things is not hubris when building an association beyond words, but it takes mercy to become a denser and denser pattern of beloved community. Make room for mistakes. Assume best intentions. Practice mercy. Begin from a place of awe. Because all of this, all of this, all of this is where God learns. May it be so. And amen.